Today's Bible lesson is coming from the New Testament, the second Corinthians chapter five, verses 11 through 17. Hear these words. Therefore, knowing the fear of the Lord, we try to persuade others, but we ourselves are well known to God. And I hope that we are also well known to your consciences. We are not commending ourselves to you again, but giving you an opportunity to boast about us so that you may be able to answer those who boast in outward appearance and not in the heart. For if we are beside ourselves, it is for God. If we are in the right mind, it is for you. For the love of Christ urges us on because we are convinced that one has died for all. Therefore, all have died. And he died for all so that those who live might live on longer for themselves. But for him who died and was raised for them, from now on, therefore, we regard no one from a human point of view. Even though we once knew Christ from a human point of view, we know him no longer in that way. So if anyone is in Christ, there is a new creation. Everything old has passed away. See? Everything has become new. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. May we pray. And now God, may these words of my mouth and the meditations of the hearts of all of us who are in this holy place be acceptable in your sight. Amen. We conclude today the summer series on life verses. Davis will be back with us next week, and I know you're happy about that, and we're going to be happy to see him back. And I hope you'll make a special point to be here to welcome him back. When he asked me several weeks ago to, uh, to preach on this particular life verse, becoming a new creation in Christ, my mind immediately went into overdrive. The lingering question for me was this, what exactly does becoming a new creation look like? I understand that my decision to follow Jesus gives me a new direction to pursue. But speaking for myself, I find that my becoming a new creation didn't happen all at once. It has and it still is taking time. In fact, I found myself longing for a series of sermons just on this verse, the, the number of ways in which we become new creations. And so for today, not being able to cover them all, I want to tell you just one of the ways that it's happened for me. And there's a spoiler alert, and it also comes with this caveat. Sometimes, and I suspect even most times, the journey to becoming a new creation 
doesn't come directly from Christ at all, but comes from Christ through someone. I arrived on the campus at Vanderbilt University in the fall of 1978 to attend the Divinity School. If you want to become an ordained elder or deacon in our church, you have to have a Master of Divinity degree. That's how you do it. I had grown up in Woodbine, or more affectionately known to some of you who grew up here, Flat Rock. My academic career at Glencliff High School was, shall we say, unspectacular. My guidance counselor actually said to me, I don't think you're college material. Which looking back on it seemed like such a cruel thing to say to a kid. But looking back on it, I doubt that very many other people saw that future for me either, except maybe my mother, who like most mothers tend to look at their children with optimistic eyes. But there I stood that day in 1978 on the campus, filled with excitement, fear, and not just a few doubts. The veteran students welcomed us newbies onto campus, and they were quick to offer advice on which professors to avoid. Among those was John Killinger. Killinger was the primary preaching professor, and since I was there to be a preacher, avoiding Killinger was gonna be impossible. Killinger not only had a PhD in religious studies, he had a PhD in literature. He had already written about 20 books and he was good for a book or two a year. He was widely considered one of this nation's finest preachers. On the campus stands Benton Chapel. That first week, orientation week, we were herded into Benton Chapel for a worship service. And wouldn't you know it, Killinger would be the preacher. Now I'd heard some good sermons in my life, but I'd never heard anything like this. It was as if every word had been mined and polished like a diamond. Every sentence had been sculpted by a master. It was so good, it was intimidating. Well, the first course we took that semester was a preaching course, but it was a lecture course. We preachers in training the PITs, which the law school students love to just call us the pits. I won't tell you what we called them. I skated through that lecture course all right. Thought I did fine. The second semester, we had what was called a preaching practicum. Now don't get lost in that. It was just a fancy uh, university word for a group of preachers in training who would be preaching to each other and critiquing each other's sermons. Get some constructive feedback and try to get better. In the back of the room would be Killinger, and Killinger would be the last one to review. I signed up first in that class, and I'll tell you why. Not because I thought I was a great preacher, but I was one of the few students at that point who had already been serving churches by the time I got to the Divinity School. And by the time this class rolled around, I had already preached hundreds of sermons. And all those kind people at those little churches, when they came to the back door to greet me, they acted like I did a pretty good job. I mean, nobody ever came back there and said, gee, Jim, that stunk. You really ought to find another line of work. So armed with that false sense of confidence, I dug into my sermon vault and pulled out what I thought was one of my best efforts. It was an Easter sermon. I stood before my classmates and I delivered that sermon the best I knew how. 
Now it was time for feedback. The students operated from a modified version of the golden rule. Don't be more critical to a fellow student than you expect them to be to you later. I received some hits from them, but I thought that they were fair. And now it was Killinger's turn. Killinger had apparently never heard of the golden rule, <laughs> or he simply decided to ignore it. And if I told you today that that sermon on the resurrection became an experience of the crucifixion, would you understand me? <laughs> he rained blow after blow on that sermon. I, don't, I think the only reason he stopped that day is because the hour was up. And in my recurring nightmare, I still see John Killinger, who by the way lives in Birmingham. I know where he is. I always want to know where Killinger is. <laughs> I can still see him on the front porch with my sermon rocking with a red pen, just tearing it up. I remember feeling humiliated. Worse than that, I questioned whether or not I had really been called by God. I was deeply wounded, and I wondered if the best thing I could possibly do would be to run from Vanderbilt Divinity School as fast as I could go. I considered it. I managed to drag myself back the next day, but my heart really wasn't in it. And as I walked across campus, a voice from behind, hey Jim, wait up. Killinger, of course. He said, that really hurt yesterday, didn't it? And I said, you'll never know how much. He said, oh, I think I do. And then he said, let's you and I get something straight. You're here to try to become the best preacher you can possibly be. And I'm here to try to help you to do that. And then he said, I do believe you've been called by God and I'm gonna hold you to it. And underneath that shade tree on the campus of Vanderbilt University, John Killinger held me and then he held me accountable. He made me a new creation. He saved me. In the eighth chapter of the Gospel of John, we find Jesus in the temple. A group of the religious men have brought a woman in before Jesus who's been caught in an act of adultery. They've done this because they want to know how Jesus will react and what he thinks should be done to her. And they make mention of the fact that don't forget the law of Moses is pretty clear. This woman ought to be stoned. And by the way, that didn't mean with tiny pebbles, uh, and it's quite possible that she could die from this stoning. What say you, Jesus? We are told that the first thing he did was knelt down and wrote, scribbled something in the dirt. I'd give anything to know what he scribbled in the dirt. In my fantasy, uh, at least in one of them, I have him writing, I wonder where the man is that you called in adultery. But that's probably a story for another day. Jesus stood between this group of religious men and this woman. And he said, let me get this right. You are wanting to stone this woman because she sinned, is that it? And he said, fine, go ahead. But just make sure before you throw your rock that you can look at me with a straight face and say that you've never sinned. One by one, they begin to drop their rocks and pretty soon they were all gone. And when they were all gone, Jesus now turns and addresses this woman for the first time. And he said, where are your accusers? 
And she said, they're not here. And he said, well, then I'm not going to accuse you either. Go your way and stop doing what you were doing. Do you hear it? He held her and then he held her accountable. He made her a new creation. He saw a future for her that those men didn't. Most of us, in my experience, we want one or the other. Some of us want to be loved unconditionally by God and we don't want to be held accountable for anything. Others of us live our lives as kind of a weird scorekeeper. We imagine ourselves as more righteous than our neighbors and we enjoy keeping an eye on them and pointing out their flaws and then throwing our rocks. I served a church in a small rural town in Middle Tennessee. And this church came into crisis. A 16-year-old girl who belonged to that church, not ours, but a different one, uh, she became pregnant. Out of wedlock, of course. The town was small, so everybody knew. You just can't hide stuff like that. And so it was a genuine scandal. The leaders of that congregation got together, all men, and they decided the best thing that could happen would be for this young girl to be banished from the church because they felt her behavior was so egregious that the best thing to do would be to simply cut her off from God. And what I remember the most about that was the great pride they took in sticking to their guns and proclaiming loudly to the community that such behavior is not allowed in our church. They took great pride in holding her accountable, but not once did they ever hold her. Friends, it seems to me the richness and the fullness of the Christian faith only occurs when we do both. In the early Methodist movement, John Wesley developed small classes and bands, little groups of disciples, 10 or 12 maybe. They would meet by the week. They would pray for each other. They would read scripture together and learn together. They would, hold, uh, they would have a meal together. And then somewhere along the way, oh, by the way, that method of discipleship is what our enemies decided to tag us with our name. Methodists, that's where it comes from. Somewhere along the way on those evenings when they gathered, the class leader would look at one of the members and say, uh, Eddie, how have you been tempted this week? And guess what? Eddie would be expected to say out loud how he had been tempted. Uh, and then uh, he might look at another and say, uh, Sharon, um, how did you succumb to temptation this week? Where did you fail? And guess what? Sharon would be expected to say out loud how she had failed. Now, please hear this. It wasn't an attempt to humiliate. It was a way of building an incredibly strong bond of love among these disciples as they came to grips with their own flaws and failures. And can you hear it? They held each other and then they held each other accountable. They made each other new creations. A part of me was saved on the campus of Vanderbilt that day. I was made a new creation. And it was John Killinger acting as an agent of Christ who held me by affirming my call and then not letting me run from it. One last thing. Those men 
in the temple that day, they all reached in their pocket and pulled out their rock and their rock had a word on it. On that day, the word was adultery because these men couldn't imagine their town surviving this woman's adulterous behavior. And so the only thing they could do, think to do would be to eradicate it, not to get rid of it. Much like that church did with that young 16 year old. So it leads me to, to want to ask a question. What word is on the rock in your pocket? What is the thing out there that you feel has to be eradicated or else the world will simply stop turning? Jesus gave us over and over a model for being a disciple. It first began and begins with forgiveness. Forgiveness comes first because hear this, and if you don't remember anything else today, take this home with you. Forgiveness imagines a future. Forgiveness imagines a future. John Kellinger made me a new creation because he helped me to forgive myself for not being perfect. He imagined a future for me. That's what we do as new creatures. We imagine a future for ourselves and for each other. All of this is in the name of the Father and Son and Holy Spirit.